I'm reading this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thanks, Valerie. Good morning. When I came to Christ at age 17, I realized after a while that I really did not have a biblical understanding of money. I'd been raised by my family with certain principles, but as I began to read the scriptures, I began to see I really didn't understand very well how the scriptures teach us to handle our money and our giving. Just a reminder, we don't talk much about money here at Cole. Uh, usually, only when it comes across as a topic in a passage like it is here in Second Corinthians, these last three weeks as we've dug into this whole issue and, and dug into this biblical theme. Why don't we talk about it more? Well, it's because of what uh, in your bulletin Steve Evans wrote. Let me just read a couple lines from that. He says, the first thing I want to do is thank God for the way that he has been working in the people of this body. You have a history of generosity that is impressive and at the same time very humbling. We've been able to consistently meet our obligations and we have had the resources in hand to maintain our facilities while making some improvements to them. We here at Cold trust that God's the provider. We don't have to twist your arm or pressure you to give. And you've been faithful to do that, so thank you very much. But we really believe God is the provider. He provides just what we need to carry out the ministry here. But you and I, every day we somehow have to deal with money and possessions. And it's very important for our own spiritual health, I've come to see, that we have a biblical perspective of handling our money and our possessions. Jesus said very clearly, he said, you cannot serve both God and money, which suggests that money will enslave you. 
it will take over your heart unless Jesus is Lord and He is Lord especially of your finances. The world tells us that money is the key to life and happiness. False Christianity, false teaching tells us that money is the sign of God's blessing. But what the Scriptures teach us is that money is a gift given by God for our provision, but also as a gift that is meant to be used as a tool for loving other people. So we saw two weeks ago in the first part of chapter 8 how Paul describes our heart attitude towards money, that we need to have this attitude of radical generosity, wanting to be generous, with what God's given to us. Then we saw at the end of chapter 8, beginning of chapter 9 last week, that God wants us to, to have integrity in our use of money, both in how we handle it, but also to make sure that who we give to is handling our money with integrity as well. And if we take donations, that we are handling them with integrity. Well, our passage today, the end of chapter 9, that Valerie just read, gives us some clear and wonderful guidelines and some wonderful results for handling our money and how to give in a way that, as he talks about, gives joy to our hearts and ultimately will bring glory to God. What a wonderful thing. If we can have an attitude of giving that brings joy to our hearts and brings glory to God. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage and what we will learn today. May your spirit penetrate our hearts and our minds and help us to understand and commit to the way you want us to handle our money and our giving so that we would have joy in our hearts and that it would bring glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we're talking about this whole topic of giving, being generous, I want to remind us of a principle that needs to guide us as we're thinking about that because it's not part of what Paul's talking about here. But in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, he reminds us that God gives us money first to meet the needs of our family. 1 Timothy 5, 8 says this, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Paul could not use stronger words there <laughs> to say that money is given to you first to meet the needs. Now notice it's the needs, not the wants, but the needs of your immediate family first. But then once those are met, the question is, what do we do with the rest? What do we do with the rest? And so I want to look at four guidelines for giving that are given in verses 6 through 10. The first is that we are to give generously. This is something Paul keeps coming back to. We are to give generously. Verse 6, Now this I say, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul here quotes what seems to be a common proverb, and it's a powerful proverb. He says, Those who sow sparingly, Sparingly, that word sparingly really has the idea of being stingy, tight-fisted, 
hanging on to what you have, hoarding it for your own needs, not being generously, not, not being generous, not sowing generously. I remember early on wanting to have a garden and deciding to plant carrots. And the package said, you know, you got those tiny little carrot seeds. package said, spread a whole bunch through this row. And I thought, well, that sounds really wasteful. I'm just going to put a few here and there in this row of carrots so that I can save the rest of the seeds for next year. Well, I did that and, you know, about very few carrots even came up. I didn't get a crop. I sowed sparingly and guess what I got? (laughs) Not a lot. The next year when I spread a lot of seeds in there, it came up and I got, they were packed in, but I got early carrots as I thinned them and then I got the later carrots that were healthy and strong and I saw this principle as true. Paul is saying that if you are functioning as the world does, you'll be stingy. You'll hang on to what you have because you'll see, I've got to keep it for myself. I've got to take care of myself. If I don't, no one else will. That's the way the world functions. I have to hoard what I have so, because I may need it for later. I need it for me. In the wonderful little story by Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, this is his description of Ebenezer Scrooge. Listen to the description of what happens when we live a tight-fisted life. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone. Scrooge at squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire. Secret and self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheeks, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rhyme was on his head, and on his eyebrows, and on his wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his office in the dog days, and didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. I think that's a marvelous description of what happens when you hoard and grasp and are stingy with money. Scripture makes it very clear that you become like what you worship. Ebenezer is a wonderful picture of someone who worshipped money and became like money, cold and hard and narrow. Paul says if you live that way, what you reap in your life is stinginess, coldness, hardness. But in contrast is is he says if you live bountifully, and literally the words there in Greek are with blessing, if you live, if you reap with, sow with blessing, in other words, you are looking for ways to bless other people. If you live a generous life where you're looking to use your resources, whether it's your home, your car, your possessions, your money, to bless other people, that what you experience in your life is you get blessing in return. That is a promise of God. If you see what you have as a tool to bless others, you'll find your life filled with blessing as well. Now, 
be careful that he isn't just saying that you'll become rich or anything like that. It's not so much financial blessing directly, although there is some promise there that he will provide for you if you choose to live generously. But clearly there's spiritual blessing, and we'll see that more later in the passage. You will reap blessings on your life. He's really describing two different ways to handle money. I need to keep it for myself or spend it on myself. Or it's a tool because God is taking care of me. I don't have to hoard for myself and therefore I can use what I have to bless other people. When we moved into our house that we built, we'd been there two weeks and someone came in and said, how long have you lived here? Because it was already looking pretty well worn. (laughs) Well, I think that's because we love to use our house as a place to bless family and others? Do we use our things to bless others? We're called to live generously because we have a heavenly Father who cares for us. I love this little poem by Elizabeth Cheney, overheard in an orchard. Said the robin to the sparrow, I would really like to know why those anxious human beings rush around and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. You see, that's the way the world lives. But what Paul's saying is that we, as believers who know our heavenly father, who know his tender care in our heart, in our lives, in our hearts, that we have the freedom then to give and live generously. So, first guideline that he gives us here is live generously. Secondly, give intentionally. Give intentionally. First part of verse 7. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his or her heart. Each one as he or she has purposed in his or her heart. What What is he saying? Well, first of all, it's an individual decision. Something you come to between you and the Lord. You sit down with your spouse and decide together how much to give. It's an individual decision. Your church can't tell you what percentage to give, how much to give. You take it to the Lord, make a commitment, and follow through with it. If you're part of a group that tells you exactly how much you should give and looks at your finances to determine that, you're part of a cult. That is not a biblical perspective on giving. It says here that each one should give as he has purposed or decided in his heart. The literal Greek word is prarete, where we get our word priority. It's the same root. But it literally means to decide beforehand. What you've decided beforehand in your heart. That is, what he's saying is, what God wants us to do is decide before God with your spouse, if you're married or on your own, and decide, Lord, how much do you want me to give? And I will commit to regularly, intentionally giving that, sticking to it. Now, is it okay to just give spontaneously? Well, I think it's wise to keep some of what you have to be able to give to spontaneous needs that come up. But most of your giving should be regular, should be intentional, as he says, should be decided ahead of time 
in how you give. A reminder, a passage I read last week at the end of 1 Corinthians, chapter 16, verse 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. It's important to give regularly, to commit yourself before the Lord. This is how much we will give each month. And believe me, your commitment will be tested. Our stove died this week. Does that mean we don't give what we normally give this month? Well, no. We're committed to it. We believe God told us to give a certain amount. We're committed to that. Until God says something different, we will give. And if there's special needs, we budget for that. We plan for that. But we don't change our giving when things come up. I think it's really important we learn to give intentionally. One of the commitments we made when our children were very small is that we would help them learn to give intentionally as well. So when we gave an allowance or our kids earned money working around the house or some other job that they had, we had them divide up their money into four envelopes. One envelope was for spending. They could spend it any way they want. One was for saving. One envelope was for giving. That went to the church. And one envelope was for special needs. And we would save that up until we found somebody who was hurting, a family that was hurting, or another child that was, had medical needs or whatever, and the children would have a, the joy of giving to that special need. That's a wonderful thing to do to help train your children. We as adults could learn a lot from that breakdown, I think. It's very, very helpful. So our giving needs prayer. It needs a decision ahead of time, and it needs a way to give regularly. Now let me just say, we as church leaders have wrestled with how to help you do that intentionally. You know, the way we do it, we just have an offering plate that comes around. So it can be an act of worship for you. Many churches are going to auto deductions, credit card giving, kiosks in the foyer so you can just run your credit card and give or whatever. We've resisted that because of this passage and others like them because we want you to give out of a decision. We want you to give intentionally and we certainly don't want you to go into debt for giving, so we're not supportive of that, but we've wrestled with that. Now I understand more and more of you don't even use checks. So we're trying to figure out ways. I'm just telling you we're wrestling with this, how you can give but still give in a way that is intentional purposeful, worshipful, because we really want that to be what guides you as you give. If you have ideas, share them with Steve Evans, our administrative teacher, pastor. So God wants us to give generously. He wants us to give intentionally. And he also wants us to give cheerfully. The end of of verse 7. Not grudgingly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This word for cheerful is hilaritas. Recognize the English word that comes from? Hilarious. We're to be hilarious givers. That's God's plan. I'm a little disappointed. I didn't hear anyone laughing when we passed the offering plate today. (laughs) 
What's he really saying here? It, it is a word that means excited, happy, cheerful, thrilled that you get to give. Interesting word that he uses here. The contrast, notice, is with not grudgingly or under pressure or under compulsion. That word for grudgingly literally is the word for pain, emotional pain. He does not, God does not want us to give out of emotional pain. You know, someone twisting your arm, feeling forced to give by some emotional plea. He says that's not how we should give. And secondly, it shouldn't be under compulsion. It shouldn't be this pressure that you better give or else for some reason. I don't know if you've been in meetings like I have where someone has said, well, um, you know, the pastor gets up and he says, you know, we counted the offering. It wasn't enough. We're passing the plate again. That's pressure. It happens. You see, we're not to give out of that kind of pressure or emotional pain. Instead, it says, very interesting phrasing here, God loves a cheerful giver. Now I read that and I go, does that mean God doesn't love a grouchy giver? You know, what exactly is Paul saying here? I think what he's saying is this. The word that's there for love is the word agape. He could have used God delights in, God is excited about, but he says God agapes, which is the word for covenant love. God has a covenant relationship, a covenant love with someone who gives cheerfully. What is he saying? I think what he's saying here, Paul is, is that when you can give and it brings real joy to you to bless someone else, to give to your church, to give to somebody in need, and you really have a joy in doing that, it's an indication that you have experienced the depth of God's loving care for you. You're part of the covenant community. You know that God's taking care of you. You do have a loving Father that cares for you, and you know it, and out of that you're able to give freely and with joy. So God loves a cheerful giver. God's tender care, his, the love of a father is clearly there in a person's heart who gives cheerfully, who delights in giving to others. So we're to give generously. We're to give intentionally. We are to give cheerfully. And then finally, verses 8 through 10, we are to give by faith. Give by faith. I want to read those verses, 8 through 10, and just listen to all the promises of how God promises to care for us if we choose to live a generous life. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Paul in this section is saying, let me encourage you, Corinthians, to give by faith. Trusting in God's provision for you to, that, that He will provide everything you need if you commit yourself intentionally to be generous. You can trust God to provide. Not that you won't be tested. Not that 
you won't make a commitment and find it difficult and find that you need to step in that water of generosity before you actually see the waters divide, before you actually see the abundance of God's provision. But as you step out and trust God to provide, you do it by faith, you give by faith. The promise here is that He will take care of you and He will provide what you need to live a generous life. He's supplied. Listen to all the, the verbs here. He is able. He makes all grace abound. He supplies. He multiplies. He increases what you have. And in the verse 8, the word all, the Greek word all, occurs five times. Look at the emphasis. I think Paul's trying to make a point. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in all things, you may have an abundance for every or all good deeds. In the Greek, five times it occurs. God says, if you live generously, God will take care of you. What a wonderful picture and encouragement to live by faith. That's what he's saying. Give by faith. Trust God in your giving. Be willing to give beyond what fits your maybe narrow budget sometimes, what you think you can live without, and instead see all that you have as an opportunity to bless others with what you have. Believe that God will bless and He will. When we made a commitment, I mentioned last week, we were living on $700 a month as a young family, several children, Jeannie and I, and God said, okay, you're only getting $700, but I want you to give at least 10%. Now again, that's just what God showed us. Whatever God shows you, it may be far more than that, maybe less, but that was our commitment, $70 a month. So we committed to that, and it wasn't long after that, and we had no savings, no nothing to lean on, and our one car blew a head gasket. And it was like, okay, God, uh, you told us to commit to giving, and yet here's a bill, and we came up $400 short, exactly $400 short. And we were saying, Lord, what do we do here? You promised to provide. We're trusting you here. We prayed, and right before we had to come up with the money or we couldn't get our car back, there was a letter in the mail from the IRS. And I thought, oh no, this is not good news. <laughs> I opened it up and, the, and there was a letter in there with a check. It said, by the way, you made a mistake on your tax return. Here is a check for $404. We got our car back. God used even the IRS for his purposes. <laughs> can we live by faith? I think we can. We can trust that God will provide. So Paul encourages us, live by faith. It's hard because our whole economic system today is based on fear, isn't it? We have to have insurance because we're afraid of what might happen. We have to build up our 401ks, our pension plans, because we're afraid of the future. But I, I think the challenge for us is where is our trust? In our insurance plans, in our 401ks, or is it in the Lord? I'm not saying we shouldn't have those things. It's pretty hard not to in our culture today, although God may choose 
for you not to. Uh, that's between you and God. But the important thing is, where is your trust? What are you depending on? I appreciate ministries like Dave Ramsey, Larry Burkett, others that help people get out of debt because debt is enslaving and, and keeps you from living a generous life. So I think those are great programs to get out of the slavery of debt as quickly as possible so you have the freedom to be generous. But again, my challenge is this. Are you trusting in the program, the budget, the whatever, or are you going to trust in the Lord? Use the program, but are you trusting in ultimately the Lord to care for your needs, to provide for you? to be the one that you depend on. And I think it's especially hard for us today as we grow older because almost all cultures throughout history and even our own culture up to about 80 years ago till kind of the beginning of the welfare state, when you grow older, when you grow older in culture, your children take care of you. Your family takes care of you. That's been the norm throughout history. And we've come to a place in our culture where that's rarely true. We look to the government or we look to our pension plans, our 401ks, to take care of us for the future. I'm just not sure that's a good thing because it puts tremendous pressure on us to put our trust in those things rather than the Lord. So I don't know what the answer is to all this, but I think the challenge for us is that we take it to the Lord, we wrestle it out, what is reasonable in these things? Not what the world's telling us, but what is reasonable and what will allow us today to live a generous lifestyle. Today. And will help us to trust God for the future. I just ask you to wrestle with these things. I've had conversations with friends who have said, you know, I'm, I've, I've been there, I could work a few more years and have more in retirement, or I could quit now, have really enough for retirement, but I could use the time now to serve the Lord. What do you think I should do? I say, well, you know, you've got to decide before the Lord, but my encouragement is quit. Trust the Lord. You, you Live generously. You've got plenty. Live by faith in your heavenly Father. That's the encouragement. Well, if we choose to do that, what will be the results in our lives if we choose to live a generous lifestyle? I just want to highlight some things in the next few verses. Verse 10. God will increase the harvest of your righteousness. What is righteousness? It's Christ-likeness. If you choose to trust God and live a generous lifestyle, God will make you more like Christ. And who is more generous and giving than Jesus himself? What a wonderful picture of what God will do in making us like Jesus, increasing our righteousness. Then verse 11 and 12 talk about thankfulness that will result. If we live a generous life, the thanks will be to God. People will be so moved as they see God working through you, they will thank him. He will receive the glory. Verse 12 talks about how people's needs will be met. They will be provided for. Verse 13 talks about how God will be glorified through our giving. Verse 14, I think, is a wonderful verse. Let me just read it because it says this. While they also, they being the Jerusalem church, 
by prayer and on your behalf, yearned for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. He's saying the Jerusalem church yearns for you, the Macedonian church, through your grace and that's given, what, what are we seeing here? A unity in the body of Christ. When we choose to live a generous life, it creates a deeper unity in the body of Christ. Verse 10. It's a wonderful verse that's really a quote from Isaiah 55, one of my favorite passages in Isaiah, when it talks about, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. Isaiah 55 is a tremendous passage that talks about this new kingdom come and all the changes that will happen in nature, in people's hearts, in the world, when the kingdom comes. And I think Paul quotes it because he's saying this. That when we choose to live a generous life, it's a sign that the kingdom is here. You see, because naturally we are stingy, selfish people. But when God's Spirit moves in us and we become generous, giving people who give our lives away, who don't hoard it, but trust our Heavenly Father to provide for us, it's a sign to all the world that the kingdom is here. The new creation has begun. God is changing lives. It's a marvelous picture of God's grace overcoming the hearts of human beings. Well, in the story of Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge is changed by the three ghosts who come and he ends up kneeling down and confessing his sin and being a changed man as he gives his heart to Jesus Christ. Then he promises to bless many through his giving, to no longer live a stingy life. And this is a description of Scrooge after that time. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. And to tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew, or any other good old city town or borough in the good old world. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. Scrooge is an example of a life that's changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ from stinginess, selfishness, to generosity. May our lives, your life, my life, be an example like Scrooge of a life that's been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ from one of selfishness to one of radical generosity. May our lives paint a picture for those around us of the wonderful, abundant, caring, generous grace of God so that others might give thanks and glorify God. The last verse in this passage, verse 15, Thanks be to God. For his indescribable gift. Let's pray. We do give thanks to you, God, for your indescribable gift, that you have been overwhelmingly generous with us, granting us life and all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places and promising to provide for us as we trust you, as we learn to walk by faith. May we be people of the new covenant, people who live generous lives because we know you are there taking care of us and providing 
all that we need. May we walk by faith so that you will receive the thanks and the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.